everyone. Welcome to the Mike Rosart Show. Welcome back. It's another Wednesday installment today, a little after seven o'clock. It's, geez, it must be 7.08 or 7.09. Just got in the door, literally just pulled up and uh, got in. I'm having a crazy busy day today. I was going on with some properties, um, acquiring a couple properties and dealing with a whole bunch of backlog properties we're trying to sell, you know, and a whole bunch of things I've subscribed to over the last, you know, couple of years or so. So hopefully the stream is working loud and clear and you guys can, can hear it and see it. Um, if you can, jump in the comments and let me know. I know it takes a couple seconds to upload it uh, and then you guys get the notification and you pile on. So let me know if it is working loud and clear. But uh, today I had no topic off the top of my mind. We'll just riff off whatever you guys have to say. My thoughts were, you know, I'll do a little preamble for one quick minute on like financial freedom and how it's, I think people associate it too much with money and financial freedom starts up here. There are a lot of people out there who have the passive income or have the ability to have the passive income if they wanted to, you know, they could refinance their house or they have equity they could put to work and they just don't for whatever reason, they haven't arranged their finances as such, or they you know can't quit their job or whatever, but it's up in the mind. A lot of people are there financially and they actually just need to make a mindset shift. And then for the rest of the folks who are still working towards it financially, you could be free and have a job that you still go to. You could be, you know, financially free. You could be set in a way that you, you know, you love what you do. And in a lot of ways, it'll feel like financial freedom. And so I want to say it's up here in the mind and that's first and foremost. And, you know, there's a bit of like the financial security piece that requires you to have a grasp on your personal finances, but, um, yeah, so I would kind of start with that. Hey, Chris. Hey, bud, thanks for the videos. Appreciate that, thank you. Erica, how you doing? Hey, Brandon, hey, how you doing? Cryptoverse says, my guy, Rosehart. Thank you, everyone, I appreciate the, uh, the positive feedback. I'm having a tough day today. I was up late last night with the kids and stuff, and it's tough, you know. Uh, Michael says it's working, he can hear me. Key says, happy Wednesday, Mike. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Yeah, so I'll just riff off of the questions you guys have. And if we finish early today, cool, I'll take the time to go have a nap. Um, yeah, as you might notice, I started this week growing a goatee just for the for the fun of it. So yeah, I still haven't got the haircut. Been rocking the COVID hair for a long time. Look how long this hair is getting. Like, I literally cover my ears if I wanted to. I can, I can pull hair down to like here if I want to, but it's curly, so luckily I get away with it. Okay, so first question just popped up. Hey Thomas, how you doing? Thank you for dropping in the comment there. Bruno says, hey Mike, you've talked about the Smith Maneuver on your show before. I have, it's true. The Smith Maneuver is the idea that you can essentially take uh, money from your house through a refinance like a HELOC and then take that capital and put it to work somewhere, invest it in something, buy a property, buy stocks, lend it out, do something with it that creates income. And ideally you're borrowing at say 3% on your house and you'll make a 10% return or higher. And so you make a 7% spread on that. But the Smith maneuver idea is that all of that interest on your house now is tax deductible. And in Canada, mortgages are not tax deductible on your primary residence unless you do the Smith maneuver. Okay, so we'll continue with that question. I just wanted to provide some context. But could you talk about what banks offer re-advanceable mortgages or HELOCs, which increase as you pay down your mortgage principal? Yeah, so that's the idea um, like a step program, I think, type mortgage. So step program mortgages are like where you can access, it's a program where you can access the capital that you've paid down at any time. Scotiabank is famous for this. I think other banks have that option too. Any HELOC type product would, as you pay it down, 
always be able to be drawn back to the original amount. Let's say at a $200,000 mortgage, you put $100,000 on that revolving HELOC mortgage and it would go down to 190, you could take the 10,000 back out anytime you wanted. So you could park your emergency fund there, you could park excess cash there, and it would just effectively temporarily pay down the debt, and then when you wanna use that cash, you just take advantage of using it. So I like to park cash on lines of credits like that, rather than having it just sit in cash. They're effectively the same thing, but um, yeah. So that's a definitely like those programs do exist. Talk to different lenders, there's a bunch out there that do it. I don't know if TD, BMO, if those guys have programs like it. I assume they do. Um, I My personal mortgages are mostly with Scotia, and those mortgages all have a step component built into them. However, all HELOCs offer that, all lines of credits offer that, and all um, flex-type mortgages typically offer that as well. There is another option, too, wherein you just simply, ref let's say you had a, your property increased in value and you did some work to it, and you paid down your mortgage balance, you could just refinance your property. And every single lender out there will allow you to refinance. In fact, most of the time, they'll compensate you or waive your breakout fee if you keep the business with them and take out an extra, say, over a certain amount. Usually it's 50 to 100,000 minimum extra from the mortgage. Then they'll give you a bit of compensation and allow that to be taken out almost for free. And often they'll pay some of your legal costs to close it. They'll even pay your appraisal fees. So you can get access to that cash relatively cheaply through a refinance as a worst case scenario, assuming you can requalify at that new rate. Bruno says, I've reached out to big banks and they tell me they don't do that sort of thing. Bruno, you're talking to the wrong people. I know that uh, Scotiabank does as an example. Maybe talk to some, some mortgage brokers in the space because a, a branch manager, a branch uh, called financial services managers might not know. They only ever dealt with conventional mortgages and they just don't know that those other products exist or they're not available to the retail channel. It might be you have to go through a broker. Uh, in my case, I went through a broker to go to Scotiabank, et cetera. Um, they worked at Scotiabank, but they were like a, a broker. They weren't in a branch. So don't go into the branch. That's probably the worst place to go if you're looking for you know, flexibility and different types of products. Great question. Thank you, Bruno. Evening, William. Thank you. Thanks for the motivation, Extreme Clean. Hey, no problem. Happy to help. Lots of stock investment apps out there. Can you recommend one? Sash for Flash. I don't use any investment apps and I don't have any affiliations. So I don't know. I, I personally use a like an online brokerage account that's not an app. But uh, yeah, someone else can, can jump in the comments. I've done the research, so I can't weigh in. Buzz it. Did mine, feels great, sunburnt scalp. Yeah, you know, I, I thought about taking the hair all off and and uh, starting back to the wood, but I'm just not there yet. I'm kind of enjoying like the long hair and the just, you know, the carefree attitude. It's part of the fire lifestyle, I think. And I might just, I'll, I'll probably cut the hair shorter because like when I pull it down, it being this long is, is too much. Probably just trim it up and keep it long. I kind of like the long, um, but especially because eventually I'm gonna lose my hair, right? So I want to uh, enjoy it while I can. Hey Jason, how you doing? Michael says, question, I have 300,000 in equity in my studio apartment in Vancouver. I can't house hack because it's just a studio. He is using my HELOC, the only option I have to create passive income. Well, Michael, there's lots of options. Um, I mean, there's always the sell option, right? Because it's your primary residence, you live there, the sale would be tax-free. Uh, you would then have access to all that capital tax-free. Another option is again, to refinance and take that capital and put it to work. Maybe there's a way that you could get a room, like in a studio, maybe frame up like a small room with like bookshelves from Ikea. I've heard of people doing that in Vancouver and Toronto uh, and New York. I, I don't know if 
That's something you can do with your apartment, but maybe getting a roommate would be a way to house hack. That sounds uncomfortable though. Probably cheaper just to pull the equity out. Like 300 grand, if you went and private lent that, that's like three grand a month in passive income, right? So you could theoretically take the equity in your house and have it pay for your living costs. So that's something to think about if you can tap out some of that uh, through a refinance. So something to think about. But uh, you'd probably want to increase your HELOC if you had all that equity in your property that you could tap into. Assuming you can qualify. Maybe there's another creative way to, to earn income from that, but I think the only way is to pull the money out so you can invest it elsewhere. Chris says, question, are stock market investment apps that offer a free share worth giving your information to? I don't know, Chris. Um, I hear a lot of the other YouTubers promoting like, you know, all those, you know, Weebles and all those kind of stock apps that give you a free share. And I think that if I if promote it, as a promoter, you get like a free share too. So if, uh, presumably if I promote like a hundred people got it, I get like a hundred free shares. Um, now it could be like a dollar share, it could be a $10 share, I don't know kind of shares you get, but uh, it's random probably. But uh, yeah, I don't know a ton. I, I don't know if it's worth it or not, it's up to you. I'm sure that they sell the information. I'm sure there's a reason why they're trying to get you on their platform. Maybe it's just to get sort of a, a market dominance or to get some presence and say, hey, they got this many investors using the app. I don't know, I, again, I don't use those free apps, so I don't know. Um, I, I'd have to look into that, so I'm not the guy to ask about that. And I have no promotion going, so um, yeah. Next question, Cryptoverse says, what's the best way to increase credit if you have bad credit? Okay, I can answer this question. Um, I guess go back to the first couple of videos I released in say, maybe the first three, four months of my channel. If you go back and look, I have two great videos on how to increase your credit score. One is like how to get an 800 credit score. The other one is improving your credit score or something to that effect. You can go back in my videos and you'll see them there. But um, when you think about how credit score is, you know, how the formula works, we know they've published the percentages of breakdown that create your credit score. So we have the equation and we know the weights for each category. I don't have it off the top of my head, I have to go look at it, but one of the major things that most people don't consider is credit utilization. It's a big one and it impacts, a, a, I think a third approximately of your credit score. And many people just have one credit card and that's actually a mistake. If you don't have multiple pieces of credit, you don't have a diverse um, credit profile. They can't see how you'd handle, say, a car loan or another type of, you know, a consumer credit card or a retail credit card or a loan or how you'd handle a mortgage. They want to see you can pay your cell phone bill, whatever you can register and pay on a consistent basis. Um, even if you pay it off at the end of each month, it's good to do. So for instance, having one credit card is way worse for your credit score. If you have a, say, a thousand dollar limit on your credit card and every month you spend 600 bucks and you pay it off in full, your credit might be destroyed because you're using 60, 70, 80% of your available credit. Your whole available credit's a thousand bucks and you're using six, $800 of it whenever you make a purchase that it would be destroying your credit. If you were to instead go apply for another 5,000 or $10,000 credit card, have two credit cards, maybe even a third credit card, your score might temporarily drop a couple of points because you applied for something and applications are soft credit checks which drop your score three, five points. It's not a lot, but it rebounds very quickly. And as soon as you have that additional credit, now if you spend a thousand or 2000 a month and your available credit across your credit cards is like 10 or 12,000, you're using less than 20% of the available credit to you and you're paying it off each month. Now your credit score is gonna jump a ton and you've changed nothing, you just applied for more credit. So applying for more credit in many cases actually increases your ability to get a better credit score. Um, they also wanna see different types of products and length of products open. So if you've had a credit card since you were 18, keep that card open forever. I still have an original credit card. There's a very small limit. I never use it. it. Gives no points. 
but I keep it open because it's been open for like 10 years. And so my, it impacts the average age of all of my credit. So things that might negatively impact, if you went and opened three credit cards and just got three mortgages, your average age of credit is like zero, 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 and then one card is like 10 years old. So your average age of credit for your credit history is very poor. So it's something that, um, why did you go directly to the banks? And when would you recommend going to a broker? Um, don't go to the banks if you, if you can. Unless you have someone who's really great at the bank, don't go to the bank. They have limited flexibility, limiting qualities for uh, available products and qualifying you. So I almost always recommend Broker Channel if you can. Uh, where I'll go direct to the bank is if I have someone who um, is a mortgage, mobile mortgage specialist at a bank, meaning all they do is mortgages. They're not fixed to a branch, they float around, they can come to your house, they have their own underwriter direct, and they do 200 mortgages a year. That's the person you can maybe deal with. For instance, Scotiabank, that's who I deal with. And we have great rapport and I get things done a lot quicker than if I were to go into the branch, I probably wouldn't get approved in the same way or with the same types of products. So that's what I'm a fan of. If you're gonna go direct to branch, make sure you're not just going into a branch, you're going direct through a mobile mortgage specialist who just does mortgages, who's a specialist at that. And then they go in, right? So a uh, good question. But yeah, to wrap up the, the last uh, other question you asked there, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to improve your credit and it depends on where your credit score currently lies. So do you have currently, for instance, a lot of utilization? That might be a problem. Do you have, you know, a poor average age of credit? Do you not have a lot of different credit products? If you have one credit card and one loan that you don't have very much on your credit report to give them an idea of actually how you'd manage your money, uh, how you'd manage your debt, how do you pay it back? So the more debt you take out and the more you pay it back, uh, on a consistent basis, the better your score is going to be. It's interesting though, because if you make minimum payments, that counts in your favor. So for instance, if you had a $1,000 credit card uh, balance on a $10,000 card, and you never paid it off, you just paid the minimum payments, you could get an amazing credit score, almost 900. So it's a myth, people think that people who are bad with credit card debt and stuff, um, you know, have a bad credit score. Not always the case. You could be like just making your minimum payments every month and have a great credit score, but just racking up interest on those credit cards. It's only an issue if you'd use up all your available credit limit, then your credit score will be impacted negatively. But it, the system's actually designed that if you never pay off your credit cards, just keep paying the minimum payments, you could have like an 850 credit score. That would be good to a lender. A lender would, like a credit card lender, would love to see that you just make the minimum payments because they're gonna milk you for all the interest, right? So, um, when Zen, good to catch you online. Good to see you online as well. Thank you for joining the stream tonight. Uh, what would you recommend when trying to sell a house privately? How do you get the highest return? Well, in most cases, selling a house privately will result in a lower sale price than if you were to use an agent, almost always. You want that market exposure, you want the expertise of a good realtor who can market and show your property. I can't tell you how hard it is to sell a property yourself. People don't wanna buy when the owner's present. Literally having the owner present when a realtor's trying to sell a property makes it almost unsaleable. They don't wanna see the current owner. They don't wanna see it personalized. You wanna unpersonalize your house as much as you can helps so they can envision themselves in the property, right? You want to remove yourself as much as possible from the transaction to get the most, to get the best price. Traditionally speaking, there are exceptions to every rule, but by and large, the data suggests people who sell their house privately without a realtor tend to get like 10% less than their house is worth. So unless the commission's 10%, you're almost always better listing it. Plus there's value for your time. Like what's your time worth to try to market the property, show the property, write the offers up, go through all that stress. In many cases, it's just better to go through uh, a realtor. Unless you knew someone in your private network who wanted to buy your house or you knew someone 
who wanted to pay a premium for your house and maybe they were looking for the house in that specific area and they were waiting and on the market watching and nothing came up and you had that you know that property they wanted you can maybe save the commission in that situation and still get top dollar but in most cases you won't be able to sell your property privately and get as much it's better off to get a realtor to do professional pictures and video tours and spend the time and the money marketing the property across the mls system so that all the other agents can see it and tell their clients etc and so forth pay the little bit of commission you'll get it back on the back end with a higher sale price and i've learned that lesson the hard way trying to sell properties myself so I can tell you from experience and from what the data suggests when looking at average sale price of a private home versus a, a MLS listed home with a, a professional agent. And there are tons of hack agents out there too, so be careful. But uh, if you got a good agent, they're worth their weight in gold in the sale price. Uh, okay, next question. And is using a HELOC the only way to access your home equity to invest? No, you could just refinance your property, pull the equity out, and then show that money going directly into an investment account and you'd be good to go. Uh, or against like to buy a property or something to that effect. But you'd have to show it going directly all to that investment. If I were to move to Nunavut to work, do you think real estate investing is possible there? My job pays more up north. Sorry if this sounds stupid. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's possible anywhere. You could buy property anywhere. I don't know what the prices are like in Nunavut, but I assume that rent to price ratios would be pretty favorable given not a lot of people want to live in Nunavut. So I would, I would guess there's not a lot of investor demand. I would guess that land value is not that high. Uh, and because you know they're not that high, you'd be able to get good cash flow. Probably the government programs that exist in Nunavut, like you know the government support programs are the same. Like they're probably a similar minimum wage there, similar whatever. So all that stuff means that rent prices might be similar, but house prices might be lower, which would insinuate higher cash flow. So I don't know, I'd have to look at the market there and see what the prices of houses are and what the rents look like. But in an afternoon, you could find out if it was feasible. I'm going to bet that it is feasible because real estate is pretty much feasible anywhere. Um, it's just the risk to reward level, right? Like who wants to live in Nunavut? So risk is probably higher than when you're trying to unload your property later. It might be a bit of an issue, but uh, yeah. Okay, next question up here. Hey Mike, what is the minimum rent in South London? South Ontario, sorry, London, Windsor, Chatham, Kent. Chatham, Kent is one word, I guess, uh, or one county. And when renters start paying again? Um, so the minimum rent, there is no, Devendra, there is no minimum rent per se. Um, you can have the smallest, crappiest bedroom rent for like $300 a month. Um, and you can have a small bachelor unit that rents for 500 a month. You get another nice bachelor unit that rents for 1200 a month. And there's a huge difference between Windsor and London, as an example. Rents are 20, 30, 40% difference in some cases. Uh, between like downtown London and like a crappy area of Windsor, as an example, you might have a, a bedroom that rents for 400 in Windsor and 650 or 700 in, in London. I don't know, like so much variation. It depends so much within those cities. So that's a tough question to answer. And I think it's kind of a loaded one and I couldn't give you an accurate answer to anyway. But the second part of your question was, when do tenants have to start paying rent again? They've always had to pay rent. There is no, it's a myth that you don't have to pay your rent. Everyone has to pay their rent. In fact, those that don't will have to catch up at some point and pay the rent or they'll be evicted. And the moratorium on evictions is ending, I believe, end of the month. And the new Bill 184 has come out in Ontario, which is giving landlords who are being abused by tenants who are trying to milk the system, giving them power to evict them easier. It's not going to do anything for good tenants. Like good tenants don't have to worry. Tenants that pay their rent on time, that are good, reasonable tenants, take good care of the unit, they don't have to worry. Bill 184 gives them more power, actually. 
gets things done faster. But tenants that are abusing the system, that aren't paying their rent, they're trying to milk it for a year, that's gonna be done. It's gonna be quick and you'll be able to get an eviction a lot quicker. Um, so the scumbag tenants are going to be, um, or I guess the bottom tenants, the tenants that no one really wants, the ones that don't pay rent, the ones that destroy the units, the ones that are hard on, on you know, hard for landlords that make us no money. Um, the ones that are, you know, anyway, so those tenants are not going to be benefited by this new bill that came out. So the end of tenants paying rent is coming soon. Most tenants are paying rent though. Like to be honest, people I'm talking to, a good three quarters of tenants are paying rent. It's only the bottom tenants that aren't paying. Pretty much everyone's getting a serve check for like two grand a month in Canada right now. So with that emergency relief benefit, tenants don't have a good excuse to not pay rent. Um, in most cases, like yeah, you have to show the landlord and tenant board that you didn't have an ability to pay. And if you collected serve, then you had an ability to pay unless you squandered that, in which case that was self-inflicted and you deserve to be evicted. I'm sorry, like that's just, like you see so many posts of people buying like a new MacBook or an iPhone or like new shoes with their serve check. And it's like, why haven't you paid your rent? Uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, that is definitely something that I'm excited about is fairness in the process. No one should be able to take advantage of another person and it should be fair between tenants and landlords and renters must pay their rent if they're able. They've always had to pay their rent during COVID, but the ability to evict and reinforce on those uh, late payments, I believe at the end of the month is when the moratorium ends. Maybe that's been updated, but last I read that was the case. Erica says, hey Mike, I'm going through a process of setting up a corporation, which I currently operate as a sole proprietor. Oh, I have a lot of credit available to me personally. Do you suggest or how do you suggest how to loan the corporation or qualify for credit under the corp quickly? So yeah, I mean, you, you could personally loan the corp some money. Um, you could go in and apply for a credit card with the business so it could start establishing its own credit score. Um, you can go in and apply for a small business line of credit. Like Bank of Montreal and RBC have been known to uh, want to give ten dollars to $40,000 small lines of credits to sole proprietors, even when they're just getting started without financial statements. So in a lot of cases, you can go get a small line of credit and then show that you're good with that line of credit and then you can increase it. You're gonna have to personally guarantee it, of course, because it's a new corp. But yeah, the other option is, yeah, you could just take your personal lines of credits that you have, borrow that money, lend it to your corp, and then you could just probably, I don't know, you have to look at the tax rules on it, but you probably have to show a little bit of profit, but more likely than not, you could write off the interest given you borrowed from your unsecured line of credit and brought it over to your corp. Uh, it'd be traceable fairly easily to show that, hey, the interest was completely for my business. It was a business expense. And you could probably make that argument that, hey, uh, like probably you have to pay yourself interest every month. And then you have to claim that interest income on your personal tax return and then probably get a deduction for the cost of those funds would be my, my thought. But talk to your accountant and find out if there's a more creative solution or I don't even know. I'm not a tax professional. So don't rely on any of this for tax advice. I am not a licensed CPA. Alex Martin says, Mike, what's up? Hey, Alex, good to see you on. Thanks for all the free advice. Bruno, no problem. Happy to help always every single Wednesday. What's the highest interest rate that you would feel comfortable with borrowing to invest? Bruno, that depends on the investment. So if I'm doing a quick flip, as an example, where I bought a property for $100,000 that's worth $250,000. This is a really good flip, a juicy one. And let's say hypothetically my renovation costs for 50 grand. Then there's almost, as well into the six figures in profit. I could pay 40% interest for a four month period. And that would be acceptable to me because 40% interest on, you know, like three, four months is not a lot of interest. It's only for a three or four month period. So over that period, I'll pay like 10% interest. That's, I can still have a huge profit. So it depends on the project, right? It depends on what I'm borrowing the money for, what I'm investing in. 
So if it's you know a regular rental property that has you know twenty percent cash on cash return, I would like to look for you know maybe a three or four percent cost of debt. But it just depends on the project. So you want to match up the return you're going to get to the cost of the funds. And if there's a good enough spread for the risk, then do it. But good question. Andrew says, what are your thoughts on the Ford Focus as a first car? Andrew, as you know, I've, well, you don't know, I've owned two Ford Focuses in my life. And I love the Ford Focus, it drives great. Um, our first one we got in 2009, it wasn't my first car, I had a, I had a Chrysler Neon stick shift, manual uh, transmission, that was my first car and I loved it. Um, it was a beauty, it had a nice uh, sunroof, and it had a lot of great things about it. But um, the, the Focus is great, it's very economical on gas, Believe it or not, you can even tow a little light aluminum trailer behind you if you needed to. I have a friend who does with their Ford Focus for doing little renovations and stuff, carrying a little bit of drywall with a Ford Focus if you use an aluminum trailer. So you get a hitch on it. You could even use it for that if you had to. Uh, full two by eight foot two by fours and trim fit in when you have the seats down from the top front of the inside of the windshield to the trunk, closed trunk. So that's beautiful. You could put 10 footers in, you have them hang out the back with a little uh, red tape on the back. So there's Tons of versatility with the Ford Focus. It's a four-cylinder car that has great economic fuel economy ratings. Um, it's not the best for horsepower or pickup, but it's a car that's gonna get you from A to B. It's not fancy, it's cheap. You can buy one for two or $3,000 if it's like a 2010. So they're a really cheap car that you can probably sell in three years for what you bought it for. So very little depreciation, very little cost of total, total cost of ownership, especially here in Canada. Parts are very, very cheap on the Ford models because they're, they're made here. As opposed to say like a Toyota, costs a little bit more to maintain than a Ford. Um, from a parts perspective. Now I hear really good things about the Toyota uh, line of like the Matrix and the Yaris and things. They last forever, they run a long time. But um, yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to every vehicle. The Ford Focus is known to be a very cheap vehicle that that lasts a while, so. I am a fan of the Ford Focus. I don't have one now, obviously. I've uh, upgraded a little bit. My family's kind of outgrown the Ford Focus, but it's a good little vehicle, good little first car. You get the Rosehart stamp of approval on that one. Okay, next question. How could the housing market be so hot when this is basically a recession? When will the bubble burst? October? Uh, Jason, good question. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I'd be buying, uh, you know, put options and I'd be shorting everything. But uh, I don't know. Um, I thought that the market would not be as hot as it is now. I thought that the low interest rates combined with so what is causing this right now? I've talked about it three, four streams ago. To recap really quickly, it's very, very low interest rates. We have the lowest interest rates in history. Uh, I just got a 1.34 five-year variable mortgage as an example. That kind of stuff is unprecedented ever. So we have the cheapest that we have ever had. Um, we have a demographic piece that suggests that people who are here in the country that can't go anywhere now and travel want to get a bigger house. So everyone wants to upgrade to a house with a pool. So houses with pools are in huge demand. They want a bigger backyard. They want a nicer house. They're spending more time at home. So they're valuing their house more. And so a lot of people are actually upgrading. And so that's creating some pressure on the system, but the low interest rates are making that possible for people. It's creating a false sense of like, it's gonna be really cheap for people to buy a house. And then when they have to refinance in five years, they're gonna find out, geez, I can't afford it at 4%, but I could afford it at 2%. Uh, so that's gonna be a problem. Uh, demographically speaking, we have some downward pressure. Um, there's very little immigration during COVID, so we have a lot less population than we were supposed to have. The international student programs are like shut down, so we've got thousands of tenants we don't have that we would have had. Um, so the rental market's like, pfft, the, the 
literally it's like someone pulled the plug in the rental market. Vacancy rates are coming up, it's harder to rent units. Rent prices will fall, they haven't yet, but they will. We're starting to see that uh, at the top of the market, we're seeing a bit of a slippage there. So rental properties will eventually, especially in London, Ontario, uh, come up for a discount. Now, I don't know how long it's gonna be because the government pumped like almost a trillion dollars into government uh, stimulus, so like, or sorry, um, business stimulus funded by the government. So people getting giant $40,000 interest-free loans where part of it's like repayable, uh, part of it isn't even repayable, part of it's free. Uh, and then they're handing out all these CERB checks. There's a ton of stimulus going in. Employers are getting employees paid for by the government. There's just money going around everywhere. So those who have money right now are actually doing pretty well through this because they're getting a lot of stimulus from the government. And those who have no money, who are completely broke, are getting more on CERB than they were on Ontario Works or, or you know on whatever they were on before. They're struggling with $1,000 a month. Now they're getting $2,000 a month. So there's actually a lot more money in the market. Until the stimulus ends, we won't know. Until the market starts to recover, because our economy actually hasn't recovered. When our economy starts to recover, and we actually have real GDP growth that's not fed by the government printing money and fake stimulus, um, artificial low interest rates. When that, when the market recovers, and then interest rates are, raised, are rised up again, like the government will have to raise interest rates. That's when, and when they stop printing so much money, that's when the reality is going to hit for people. All this, there's been a moratorium on bankruptcies. There's been no bankruptcies, like hardly any. There's been a moratorium on um, like foreclosing on people's houses. There's been the lowest foreclosures in history. People who were gonna be foreclosed on anyway got off because of COVID. They've got to stay in their house longer. So it's been, we're gonna see all that catch up in the fall. And I don't know how it's gonna play out, but my, my gut says there's gonna be a lot better deals in the fall than there is now. So I'm holding on to my pants and waiting. Uh, I'm not buying anything on the MLS right now. Um, that's just me. I don't know when it's going to crash. I don't know if it will crash. I think a crash is the wrong word, actually. I think correction is the better word because the government will not let a crash happen. They will print more money. The Canadian economy is too tied to its real estate market that a crash won't happen. They'll literally just print money so that prices of houses don't fall um, beyond a certain amount. So 5%, 10% may be possible. Beyond that, not possible. So I'm just careful. Everything I buy has at least a 10 or 15% discount built in. So if the market corrects 10%, I'm good. I'm not buying a $400,000 house for 400. I'm buying a $400,000 house for 355. And then I got enough room that if the market comes down a bit, I'm okay. So just be careful. Insulate yourself against what could happen. Um, we could go a five-year period where there's no appreciation. That's happened tons of times over the decades. Um, so that's possible. Don't plan for appreciation. If it happens, bonus. But we might go through a period where there is no appreciation and I don't know. It's possible. Next question, um, the shares are all random. That's true. Thanks, Sash McFlash. Ace says, why did you go directly to the banks and when would you recommend going to a broker? We answered that question already. Next question, William says, Mike, until 300 years ago, most people lived on 500 to $2,000 a year. I agree that decision is not fire. It's just keeping up with the Joneses in the West. Yes, great point. So I understand what you're saying there, William, is the idea that for a long time, you know, for hundreds of years, people didn't go out to eat. They didn't have their laundry done by someone else. They didn't have their cars. Like people were Renaissance people. If, if our car broke down, we fixed it ourselves. If we had to do our laundry, we fixed it ourselves. We, you know, our laundry machine broke. We figured out how to fix it ourselves. Or we got a neighbor and we bartered. There wasn't a need to spend so much money for the latest and greatest stuff. These experiences, like people just didn't do that a hundred years ago. And so we're consuming now more than we ever have. And that's creating this like false prison that keeps us locked to a job. So now we have to trade our whole lives working for a job to have this stuff that we think that we need. 
and that's that's the point you're making there and I 100% agree that said I also subscribe to some of these niceties and luxuries and I think there's value in having some things outsourced especially if you realize hey my time is super valuable it doesn't make sense for me to clean my own house as an example um, so yeah I mean it's a you know it's a bunch of pros and cons and a bunch of things that you have to think about and say hey like is this something that brings value to my life or you know would it would I rather cook my own dinner and do more frugal things like play on my computer and go for walks and hikes and spend time with my family as opposed to having those fun you know day trips and then having to work all the time to pay for them so it's a choice at the end of the day and so if you choose that medicine don't complain when you, when you have the side effect of having to work for it I guess is the is the thought so it's all up in your mind and believe it or not you can live on a lot less than you think than you need than you think that you need Pat says, I'm house hacking a single family house with a guest house and a granny unit. Should I consider a schedule E reporting this income to improve my utilization? As of now, it looks like I'm liable all of it. Yeah, I mean, if you're like earning income and it's, like if you're just renting out a room, for instance, and this is not tax advice, but if you're renting out a room, for instance, and it's barely even covering the costs, like your mortgage is way bigger and your utility is way bigger, it's just helping offset the costs, my understanding is you wouldn't have to claim, like that's a minor thing you wouldn't have to claim because it's not profit, you're actually still losing on your on your house, it's not a business venture. But if you got a couple units and you're actually making a profit, then you'd want to claim that um, for sure. What would you recommend when trying to sell a house privately, i.e. how to get the highest return? Um, I answered this question already actually. What is your view on ETFs versus mutual funds? Jeff, um, it depends on a lot of different factors, but I guess I'll talk about the fee structure first. From a fee structure, I guess I'll talk about what they are first. So an exchange traded fund is the idea that you buy, you put some money into a fund, a computer, follows certain algorithm codes, there might be one or two people working on it. It's very light on the labor, but basically it is a more passive strategy where they buy a collection of different stocks and you put your hundred bucks in that's split over hundreds of stocks and you're diversified and you own a small piece of many different companies inside of your exchange traded fund. It has very little fees because it runs very lean, mostly algorithm computer traded. So that type of fund would have a very low management expense ratio of call it 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, maybe half a percent at the maximum as a fee. So if you made a 10% return, if that fund made a 10% return, then you get nine and a half percent to you. A mutual fund is actively traded by people, like stock traders are working on the floor for that fund and they're actively trying different strategies to you know, mitigate loss and to maximize profit. The argument is that a mutual fund can outperform a more passive investment like the S&P 500. In most cases, that data supports that actually isn't true net of fees. They don't outperform the S&P 500. 99% of mutual funds don't outperform, so 1% do. And everyone likes to peddle that their 1% does, but um, you know, at, at the end of the day, mutual funds have like a 2% management expense ratio. So over the lifetime, if you had your investments in mutual funds, you would have about half the portfolio size that you would in exchange traded funds, assuming both of them perform at about the index. And they're typically indexed to like the S&P 500, let's say. And if both perform about the same as the index, then you'd just be like the one and a half to 2% MER fee eating you away. Now where I could argue that it makes sense to have mutual funds is if you need that advice and you can't afford a financial planner and you can't afford to pay them 150 bucks an hour to build you a financial plan. And your financial advisor is working for free and the only way they get paid is through that mutual fund fee then it's like, okay, I could argue and justify, you know, that fee being worthwhile if you're getting a lot of valuable advice that's helping you build wealth in other areas of your life. So mutual funds aren't all bad, but um, I guess if you don't have a financial planner, don't have 
definitely don't choose a mutual fund option. And if you can get your financial planner to sell you ETFs or mutual funds with lower MERs, management expense ratio, then that would be the key that you'd be going for at the end of the day. Uh, but remember, you're taking that from your advisor, so think that through when you're making your decision. Do, do, do. Next question. Oh, there's a lot of questions here. Always a good, always a good crowd. Everyone jumping on. You'll catch the replay if you've missed it. And by the way, if you're watching this at 36 and a half minutes, I'm sorry if automatically it throws in a ton of ads. I don't know why YouTube keeps doing this, but they keep throwing through these mid-roll ads. And for some reason on really long videos, they put in one every like seven minutes and it's like a billion of them. And I'm sorry for that. Uh, I have to manually go in, log in on my laptop, go into the creative studio and remove them, uh, which is really annoying. And I wish I could just stop that, but there's no way to do that. So I try to get on within 24 hours and do that. I know a lot of you guys comment, in the first couple hours after the stream's released that it's annoying. You're trying to listen to it like a podcast and these ads keep popping up. Blame YouTube, it's not me. I don't know why it does that. Um, I like an ad at the start and I like an ad at the end and if you can watch them, cool. Uh, it gives me like a penny. I get a little bit less than a penny. It's like a three quarters of a penny every time you watch. So thank you for the penny if you've watched the ad at the start of this video, at the end of this video. I don't care about the pennies enough to put them in the middle of the, the videos but it just does it automatically. I don't know why. Um, so yeah, one in the middle is okay. I deserve, I deserve a penny. You know, if you've watched like 30 minutes of this, you should watch one ad because I deserve a penny for all that I've given you. Um, give me a couple seconds of your time or just put your phone down and let it play for all I care. Um, but yeah, I'll keep going with these questions here, guys. I hope you're appreciating this. Uh, for those people who are watching, I do it every week for free. For those people who are new to my channel, I go every single week from 7 to 8 p.m., 7 to 8.15 in that range. Uh, I go live and I answer questions and we just talk about personal finance, real estate, whatever. Uh, I'm here to give you my opinion. Don't hold me to it, I don't wanna be sued. I'm not an expert. I'm just airing my thoughts for the world to see and I'm hoping to provide a little education for those people who are trying to improve their personal finances and achieve flair. So that's what my channel is all about right now. I used to do a bunch of videos. I have a ton of great videos that are pre-recorded you can watch. I don't do any videos anymore because I just don't enjoy the editing. Um, so that is what it is. Maybe someday I'll return to doing the videos, but for now, you get these live streams, unedited, unfiltered. Okay, next question. When buying from a wholesaler, is it the same process as going through an agent by using your pre-approval? Uh, I'll explain that in a second. What's the best way to close fast with a wholesaler? So the best type of buyer for a wholesaler is a cash buyer. We don't, as when I, I'm not really a wholesaler, but wholesalers don't like, and even when I've assigned deals before, I'm not really a wholesaler, I've just, I've assigned deals before in the past, before I was a realtor. And the wholesaler is looking for someone to buy a property wholesale price and close quickly. So oftentimes the wholesale deal is one that's like 90 cents or 80 cents on the dollar. It's specifically designed to be below market cost. Not always. A lot of wholesalers recently are selling deals for 105 cents on the dollar. And I see these deals pop up sometimes and they've, on these $40,000 wholesale fees that are like triple what a realtor would get in commission. And they've actually, with the wholesale fee, made the deal at market or slightly worse than at market. So be careful. Not all wholesale deals are good. Some wholesale deals are overpriced. The bank only cares about the original agreement of purchase and sale. They will not let you finance the wholesale fee almost always. Some exceptions exist, but most of the major banks will not let you finance the wholesale fee. So if it's a $150,000 house, you're paying them 190, a $40,000 wholesale fee to the wholesaler. That $40,000 is like an additional down payment. You have to refinance that out later. They will not give it to you on closing. You'll be expected to get an 80% mortgage on the original 
$1,000 purchase price, not the wholesale fee. What's weird is that realtor commissions on both the buy and sale side are baked into the sale price and they are allowed to be mortgaged. Doesn't make sense. But for some reason, wholesalers, because they're not like, technically the trade of real estate without a real estate license is illegal. You can't, you can't facilitate putting a buyer and a seller together without having a real estate license. That's trading in real estate, it's illegal. But if you buy a property with the intention to close it on yourself and then you assign it to someone else and you happen to get a fee, that's, I guess, legal. So wholesalers somehow, they, they have a way of, you know, getting around it and it's quasi legal. But the idea is basically the wholesaler is just paid by the buyer and a realtor, both the realtor sides are paid by the seller at the sale price. So in this case, when you wholesale a property, uh, you're basically like tacking on a fee that the buyer pays. And so that fee don't get mortgaged. But if you get the property appraised at say $200,000 and convince your bank that the property is worth more than you're paying for it, they may give you a bigger mortgage than the purchase price. I've seen that happen, not always, but it happens. Okay, next question. Hi everyone, hey, thanks for jumping in. Thanks to you too, appreciate the, the comment. Okay, I'm trying to find my spot here. I answered some of these questions, but not this one. Right here, I think I missed this one. Good to catch you online too, Wenzen. So with the current situation, what's the occupancy rate for the student housing for this fall. I don't know, I don't have the data in front of me, but my guess is from talking to a few property managers and my own personal experience and other people I know in London that have Fanshawe and Western Rentals and my own portfolio, I'm guessing, guessing occupancy is around 70 to 80%. I think about 10 or 20% of the students uh, have walked away from their leases. Another 10% might not be there, but are still paying the rent. And so I think that that's a roughly what we're gonna see. Um, as far as like full-time attendance, like actually in classes, I think less than half is what we're gonna see. So that's something that's kind of scary. Uh, we're going to fill, I know what's, what we've been doing, we're filling some of our student rentals with like families or putting young professionals in for the year and maybe next year it'll be better. And we're discounting the rent a little bit, but it's okay because we, we kind of have the extra cash flow there to float during times like this. So it's not great for student rentals, but uh, I think it'll, It'll recover short term. Long term, I do think we're moving towards an online environment. So I'm not bullish on student rentals. Long, long term. Just joined. Hey, thank you, Henry. Tommy says, you can also do a cash out refinance. That is very true. You can. What is the point of using a realtor? At times, it seems like an extremely pricey, unnecessary expense for what they do. No offense for realtors. Well, get out of here. No, we don't look at the squirrel. I got it. Sorry guys, that's my golden doodle. He's a good boy, sometimes. Uh, I lost my train of thought now, when Milo came for his, uh, his appearance. That's my daughter there, she's a sweetheart. Let's just have her on camera. Try to block her out. I forgot my train of thought. What was I talking about here, guys? Um, student rentals, something like that. And then we move on to the next question, I think. Oh, realtors being expensive. No offense to realtors. I, I take no offense. I'm not like, I'm a realtor, but like, I'm not really a realtor and, and I don't care. Um, like I said earlier in the stream, some realtors are worth their weight in gold. And some of them do a really good job at marketing properties and getting a premium on sale. I've seen two realtors list the same property. One, it sat on the market for six months and no one offered on it. And the other one, they put it up with good pictures, a great 3D tour, a way better description, 
Um, it was just marketed really, really well and they did a good job and they sold it for like 10% more over asking. I couldn't believe it that this property sat on the market for six months at a low price and no one offered on it. But then it got remarketed by a better realtor with better marketing experience and total difference in the price. I think I could have offered that property for like 90 cents on the dollar back when it was marketed poorly and just put it up for 100 and get like 110%, right? So I could have made a huge spread just by going in and marketing it better. So marketing is a big deal. It means a lot. Uh, so realtors can be worth their weight in gold, but you're right, a lot of realtors are overpaid. Uh, it's because a lot of the time they'll take a listing and they won't sell, or they'll have a buyer that shows they'll have to show 20 houses to and they don't buy anything. So a lot of the realtors' time is spent you know, fishing for leads or marketing. And so when they do finally get a good house to sell, their dollars per hour are really good. But in their 40 hour week, half of their time isn't even productive. It's just building their brand, their business, or working on leads that don't go anywhere, right? So that's something to think about too, I think, at the end of the day. Oh, sweetheart. I'll get her. We'll give you hungry hippos out here. Hang on, guys. Pause. Doors are so easy. I should build a studio that's far away that they can't come in these French doors. Um, I'll watch Milo's gonna try to come in again. I guess it's a sign, guys. It's a sign I should be wrapping up. But uh, yeah, a lot of realtors aren't worth their, their time and some realtors do make a lot per hour um, when they're actually working on a deal that closes. But remember the deals that don't close, right? There's a lot of time spent for marketing purposes or trying to sell a property that it never goes anywhere. The seller decides to cancel the listing and go with someone else or whatever, right? The average realtor, I think, makes like $40,000 a year. So like realtors aren't that well paid, but like the top quarter of realtors make like well into the six figures. So if you're good at what you do, you can make great money. What tips do you have for a 19 year old college student? Save, work hard, work hard, work two jobs, and invest, save the money and invest, and you'll be rich, you're 19. So if you just do this for 10 years, where you just live super frugally like a student and invest the difference, work hard. Like if you're a student right now and you don't have a job, shame on you. And if you're a student with a job, find another side hustle on top of that and save it all. Uh, and you'll be successful. That's, yeah. That's the uh, feedback that I have for a 19 year old just getting started. Let's see if I can do a rapid round and catch up. If you evict them, you take a loss in the back payments of rent. Um, I don't know if that's true. I think you go after them for the rent. Uh, they would be liable for that. The only time that'd be worth doing is if their rent was under market, in which case you could actually pay them out to leave and it would be worthwhile. That would be an investment. Thoughts on how to structure your business, holding companies, et cetera, how to pay yourself. Also thoughts on setup to continue to obtain more properties after quitting a day job or self-employed. That's a long question. Um, too much to cover in one answer, but my thoughts are um, just be, I guess the last part of that question I'll address the most, because corporate structure, you need to talk to an accountant and a lawyer about, and then you know your personal situation. It's too hard for me to give general advice on that. Um, it might not make sense to incorporate. It might, I don't know. Depends on where you're at in your journey. For a lot of people, it doesn't make sense to, um, it's for a lot of people, it just doesn't make sense to incorporate. Okay. so. Can you still buy properties once you quit your job? Yes, but you have to go to B lenders. It's a little bit more difficult. You have to use your rental income from your properties. It's gonna be harder for you to get a mortgage. You're gonna to have to pay therefore a higher interest rate on that mortgage. And I gotta go faster. There's so many questions that keep popping up here. 
I'm glad you're able to catch it too, uh, Kaylee. Hey Mike, what would you do if you had 10,000 to invest right now? Jeez, I don't know. Probably just put in exchange traded funds. 10 grand's not enough to buy a property. It's barely enough to do private lending. I maybe do some private lending with it. The thing is, like, if you had 10 grand and like, let's say you can get a 5% return versus a 10% return, the difference isn't huge in like how much you actually make per month. Like if we're talking, uh, let's say you're getting 1% a month on $10,000, so that's 100 bucks every month. If you make 100 bucks a month versus 80 bucks a month, right? We're talking like a 12% return versus like an 8% return or something. The difference isn't huge. We're talking 20 bucks a month. It's like, who cares if you get a 6% return or 10% return on 10 grand? When it's such a small amount of money, you're better to focus your time on actually earning more money. Like go earn a hundred bucks more that month. And that's more impactful than trying to squeeze out like a 5% return versus an 8% return. You're better off just put it in something like an exchange traded fund, set it and forget it until it becomes enough money that actually matters what you do with that money. When you have a small amount of money, just put it aside and invest it in something. Buy the S&P 500 index. You know, you're not on a point to buy real estate yet because you don't have enough money for a down payment for a property in almost all cases, right? With 10 grand, it's not enough. But you could buy exchange traded funds and you could start growing at seven or eight percent a year and you know, set it and forget it and focus on earning more and saving by spending less. Next question. Uh, I'm gonna keep my finger on the screen so I don't lose my place. I have to scroll every time. Um, thanks for great insights. Learning tons from your channel. Would be interested in buying a new investment property to avoid bigger maintenance expenses on an old one? Does it matter? Ryan, yes, it matters big time. Old properties that need a lot of work tend to have a really high maintenance expense versus a brand new property that has everything taken care of with a warranty. Huge difference. You typically won't get good cash flow from a new build, but it's possible. So I guess run your numbers. If Even if your maintenance expense is zero, most of the new builds are priced at such that it doesn't make sense in my market anyway. Question, due to serve, do you have a guess as to what the taxation cost might be next year? Do you have a percentage or whatever and should try to save for it? I know it's a weird question to ask. Um, what the taxation cost will be? So I, I don't know what you mean by that. Like the taxation cost. Everyone pays a different tax rate based on their individual circumstances and what tax brackets they're in. Each bracket is staggered so that uh, the more you earn, the more you're gonna have to pay in tax. And so the idea is you would put aside however much tax you're going to have to pay on the CERB if you collected it. I didn't collect any CERB at all. I took no handouts at all through this time. I lost money, but I didn't want to rely on the government. I didn't want to drain from the government, so I didn't apply. Even on companies that I had that qualified. I had one that qualified for the 40000 to $1 million in payroll, and I didn't apply. Uh, mostly because I was too busy, but also because I didn't want to drain the economy for people who actually really needed the, the financial help. So I haven't applied for it. Maybe I will still in the future. I don't know. I haven't applied for it yet. I don't plan on it. But um, yeah, just set aside money to pay back the tax on the CERB because you have to pay tax on that uh, money from the government. So if you're in a low tax bracket, you might not have to pay any tax. If you're in like, if you have no income, you're getting CERB, you're paying no tax. Um, because you're in such a low tax bracket, the first $12,000 you earn is tax-free in Canada, pretty much. So um, actually it is like 11,900, something like that, is tax-free. And the next bracket is like 15% tax, something like that, very low. Like you're not gonna pay a whole lot of tax on that CERB money um, if you're making no money at all for the year. Sorry for smashing the camera like that. Uh, next question, 75 Lucky Cat says, I just moved to London for the next two years and I'm looking to buy a house. Do you recommend waiting until the fall? Predictions or info to share on the current market? 
I don't know, but I think the falls, historically speaking, will have better deals than maybe December would be a good time to buy, I would say. During Christmas would be a good time to be shopping for a house, actually. It's when no one else is shopping. What kind of difference on return would you get in private lending if you do it yourself versus investing through a company that does it with investors' money? Well, the company is going to lend out your money probably at like 10%. Um, they're not gonna be looking really hard to find you know, really good lending opportunities. They're gonna be looking to like throw a bunch of capital out. And so you might be able to find one person to take 100 grand for like 15%, another person for 12%, and you're trying to find the most you can on each loan. They're just looking to like lend their money out. They have a ton of capital. And so the more capital you have, the harder it is to actually get a good rate. It's actually easier to get a really high interest rate on a small amount of money than it is a large amount of money. The more you're lending, the less interest rate you actually get, interestingly enough. It's harder to get a really good return on a lot of money. It's the reason Warren Buffett can't get a great return anymore is he has so much money to deploy, it, it becomes very difficult. Um, but they're gonna take a spread. So if they're lending out at 10, they're gonna have costs associated with that, right? So you're gonna get like seven. If they're getting like 15, you're gonna get like eight. So they're gonna take a big cut for themselves, right? Lender fees and whatever, they're gonna take a cut. I don't know what the cut is. Some companies is less, some companies is more. So yeah, you could do that. Um, it's already pretty passive to lend your money out. You have to do a lending agreement and like go to a lawyer and have the lawyer do all the rest of the work. And you like literally bring a check to the, or wire the money to the lawyer and that's it. So private lending can be pretty passive. It's my end game. Like that's what I wanna be doing, end game. Um, so I think it's a pretty passive business. AM, welcome to the channel. Mike Smith says, is it a good idea to buy a house hack the cash flows even while living there, even if the house is nine times your income and the rule is to buy a house no more than four times your income. Mike, I think it can be. If you're positive cash flow and it's sufficing your desire inside for a bigger house, do it. Um, I, yeah, I mean, if it's cash flow positive and you can ensure that you're gonna always get that cash flow, then do it. I gotta wrap this up, guys. My daughter's having a meltdown out there. I'm refinancing out of capital to invest in a rental property, but I'm priced out of the market. How should I invest the money until I can put into a property. I fear having a large savings in the bank. Invest in exchange traded funds or do some private lending with the money. What's up? Nice mustache. Yeah, a little goatee thing. I'm growing it out for this week. Recently bought an 1100 square foot bungalow with old plasterboard on the walls. Would you recommend putting new drywall or leave it as is? There's a smell in the house and presumably it's in the walls. Uh, in almost all cases, you can fix the smell by cleaning the ducts and just like probably painting or fumigating the whole house or ozoning the whole house. You don't have to rip the plaster off unless it's like completely destroyed. If it's in decent condition, a good oil seal, fire seal paint will get rid of all the smell and the ducts could be clean for the rest of it. Most cases, it just needs a good cleaning. There's nothing wrong with plasterboard drywall. Hey Mike, what would you recommend? Uh, I did that question already actually. Did that question. I haven't seen an ad yet, been on since the start. Yeah, Chris, for some reason when I'm during the stream, there's no ads, but after they throw up the ads. So my apology for that on the replay. Hey, awesome. Awesome, thank you for that, thank you for that. And then now it's Chris's. I want a third of a penny back. If you give me two thirds on top, I'll have a penny in real life. That's more than an actual penny. <laughs> Mr. Rosard, at what point in your process were you able to get pre-approved without having a corporate job? Yeah, I struggle even now to get mortgages with B lenders. It's a challenge. Even with a higher net worth, without the income to show for it, it can be difficult. Even with the income, the more properties you get, the more difficult it is. What kind of real estate are you investing in right now during COVID? Turning single family houses into duplex, multifamily burrs, all of the above. Um, mostly small multifamily, duplex, that kind of stuff. Hey, I'm a 17 year old dude in Mississauga and I really wanna get into real estate to create passive income. What's the best thing I can do to start learning stuff and get started? Uh, talk to people in the network. Go to networking events where real estate people are present. 
I'm going to Warrior this September, so I'll be living in Kitchener-Waterloo region, if that helps. Link up with people who, are, want, who you want to be like in five years and spend time around those people. That's the best thing you can possibly do right now. I'm working through your videos from a couple years ago. You mentioned that if people want to partner or invest with you, you're open to that. You're still doing this. Very rarely. Um, very rarely. And only if the person has a considerable amount of capital these days. But AM, um, you can always reach out. And if you have a, you know, more than a million dollars in capital, then it would be worth potentially partnering up on some deals. Hey, Mike. Uh, what about investing in a cottage property? Are people not moving out of the cities and have money, who have money due to COVID? Eh, there's some of a trend in that. I could see that doing well, yeah. On a small project to start out, say 100 to 200K in capital input from me. So yeah, I mean, we could try with a small project, but I would need to see that you have the ability or facility to fund a larger project down the road. Otherwise it wouldn't really be worth it for me to partner in the first place. Um, okay. Edgar says, any advice for the first year real estate agents trying to make seventy dollars to $100,000 in their first year? Um, network. Network, 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 network. It's the most important thing you can do. Do you have to sell property when you sign up for, with a realtor? You don't like the price you're getting, can you stop working with a realtor? Yes, you never have to sign anything if you don't want to. You don't have to sell the house. Even if someone brought you an offer over asking, you don't have to take it. You'd be wasting the realtor's time, but you could always try. Um, I already covered that question about how the best way to sell property is. Chris says, thanks, no problem. Where can I buy your course or your book? Kale, I wish I had a course or a book to sell. What I do have is a new membership program that I'm putting out through YouTube where you can subscribe to me. You can pay two bucks a month or five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever. It's a bunch of different tiers and you get access to a private chat with me and I will do private videos where I'll go to properties and I'll share things that I wouldn't normally share for everyone to see. So they won't be for... Um, there won't be videos that you can just watch general public, but if you subscribe, not only subscribe, but you subscribe to the membership and you pay the monthly fee, then you're gonna get access to some cool stuff. I just started saying that up on YouTube. I don't know if it's out yet, but it will be. So for those loyal people who wanna support, it, I'd appreciate it. I don't have a course to sell. I don't have a book to sell right now. Nothing to sell yet. But if you want to support, that'd be a way to do it. And in return, I'll give you bonus free content, or I guess paid for content, but it'd be an extreme discount. Levin tells us, how much money are you looking to save when you're starting out? Will you need to think about renovation costs off the bat? Um, well, yeah, if you're buying a property, you need to be understanding what it's gonna cost to renovate that property, for sure. Hate to be the guy, but probably time to help the kid instead of us. Good luck, thanks for the help. Thanks, Chris, I appreciate that. I do actually have to go. Um, so thank you everyone so much for watching. I'm gonna wrap this stream up. You're right. My wife has got her completely handled and me actually coming in right now during timeout, probably not a good idea. Probably just make things worse, but I do need to spend some time with her today because I've been pretty busy going around to the properties. Does it make sense to stack many duplexes at 5% down? You can't really do that. You get one house 5% down. You can maybe do it a second time if you say you're gonna live in it again, but the fees associated with private mortgage insurance make it cost uh, prohibitive. Thanks, Mike, as Jason says. Look forward to your Wednesdays. You can have the penny. <laughs> Thanks. When starting private lending, where do I find people that need the mortgages? Do I find mortgage brokers to send deals? Um, yeah, you can start with mortgage brokers. You could just start going to networking events and talking to real estate flippers and investors, and just asking for people who are looking to borrow capital and put it out there to your network. And someone will know someone who's looking to buy a house or flipping a house. Uh, Mike, I just picked up a duplex in Sarnia, 11,000 under ask. It's my first step towards financial freedom. Just turned 24. That's awesome. Congratulations. Can you explain again how to properly do a refi so you can continue to buy multiple properties? Uh, you refinance the property and then you do it again. Um, that's how. 
not hearing any volume. That's on you, Brent. I think the volume is still there. Any ideas on how to find good deals in the starting market? I'm in the Seattle area. Uh, Angela, find a good realtor in the area who can find you good deals. Should we buy a cheap new car or a used car? Used car, for sure. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate the comment. Excited to hear about your subscription idea. Thanks. It's coming out soon. So just keep an eye, go on my channel and see if you see anything there. Peace, have a good night. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Do you require two sheets of fire rated drywall? Jeez, the questions just keep coming. Uh, no, in most cases you can get away with one layer of 5.8 drywall on Resilient Channel with rock salt insulation in between. That is typically the fire code in Ontario, the Ontario Building Code. Now there are exceptions to that rule. For instance, walls often require a little bit more fire separation than say a ceiling assembly between the units. So you may need two layers of drywall if it's a wall assembly. Anyway, do your research. As always, the secret to unlocking a wealth through you Three levers. Spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Thank you, everyone. Would love to join a premium membership. Love to learn about fun. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so definitely keep an eye out on my YouTube channel for that. It exists. So just go into my settings and find it there. Um, amazing to connect like this as a newbie. Bless your soul. Thank you, everyone. Really appreciate it. Have a good night, everyone. And I'll see you next Wednesday. And I'll see you in the comments and on Instagram at Mike Rosehart. Post like five times a day. Bye, everyone.